Our second scripture reading this morning is taken from Mark 10, verses 17 through 31, NRSV. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You should not default. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields with persecution in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Here ends the reading of his word. Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 13. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors put me to the test, though they had seen my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. As in my anger I swore, They will not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you may have an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Christ. If only we hold our first confidence firm to the end, as it is said, today if you hear his voice, 
Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now who were they who heard and yet were rebellious? Was it not all those who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses? But with whom he was angry forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest is still open, let us take care that none of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For indeed, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said, as in my anger I swore they shall not enter my rest though his works were finished at the foundation of the world. For in one place it speaks about the seventh day as follows, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place it says, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains open for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he sets a certain day, today, saying through David much later in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not speak later about another day. So then, a Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. For those who enter God's rest also cease from their labors, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow, it is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And before him, no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one whom we must render an account. Please pray with me. Author of life, we celebrate your word. And as we reflect upon its meaning, let your spirit be upon us and transform us in heart and mind and soul. Amen. Imagine that you have followed all the rules put before you for your entire life. You are certain that you have done right in the eyes of God. And then, you hear about this teacher who has come to your town, a teacher with great power, who speaks the good news of God, who heals the sick and raises the dead. And so you run off to find this teacher. You throw yourself at his feet. 
You ask him what you have to do to receive eternal life. As he responds, you feel your hopes rising. Keep the commandments, instructs the teacher. Do not kill or have affairs. No stealing, no lying. Be respectful of your elders. What great news, you've done all these things. Eternal life must surely be waiting for you. But wait, there is one more thing. You are a person of great wealth. You want for nothing in this life. And now, the teacher tells you that if you want eternal life, you must give up what you have. Sell your possessions and give the money to the poor. At that moment, the truth of today's lesson from Hebrews becomes painfully real. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It is sharp enough to pierce the soul and divide it from the spirit, sharp enough to cleave joints from marrow. And so the word pierced into the rich man who came to Jesus seeking eternal life. In fact, after having his hopes built up, it probably felt like Jesus was twisting the knife by telling him to let go of his possessions. Of course, the rich man is not the first person to have been cut low by the word of God, nor would he be the last. The scriptures from beginning to end are filled with stories of people of faith who claim to love their God. People who want to receive blessings for their faithfulness, but people who nonetheless, fail to show their faith in the way that they live their lives. Because the word of God is still living and speaking today, it continues to to expose the cruelties of our lives. It continues to see the ways in which we fail to love others and to remind us that we are called to something better. When we fail to embody the image of God, The word remains to convince us of our wrongdoing. So, what does it mean to live faithfully? How are we supposed to overcome the temptation that caused the rich man to stumble? How do we prevent ourselves from going astray as the people of God did when they wandered in the Exodus? The first step is to understand what it means to have faith. To answer this question today, I turn to the writings of Dr. Georgia Harkness. Dr. Harkness was a professor of applied theology from 1940 to 1949 at what is today known as Garrett Evangelical Theological Seminary. She had been denied the right to obtain a seminary education herself, so instead she earned a doctorate and became the first woman to obtain a full professorship at any seminary in the United States. The impact of her work upon the church is profound and, quite frankly, understated. But what is of interest to us this morning is a book she published in 1947 titled Understanding the Christian Faith. As one might expect from such a book, she provides the reader with clear definitions of what it means to have faith. 
In particular, Dr. Harkness wrote, the basic atheism is unwillingness to commit our lives to God's keeping, callousness to God's demand, the ordering of life as if God did not exist. This is the sin of unbelief, a lack of faith so widespread in our time that society has been honeycombed by it and engulfed in a worldwide destruction. To have faith in God is not merely to assert that God exists, but to do the much harder thing of putting our trust in God and his ways as the basis for individual and social living. In other words, the truth being expressed here is that if one claims to have faith in God, then one must act like it. Or to use an even more idiomatic expression, to have faith is to put your money where your mouth is. To act on faith is not always an easy choice, which is why Dr. Harkness expands on her meaning and links it to the ways that we act on faith in other aspects of our life. She continues her thought by writing, Courage is presupposed in faith as trust and commitment. For while there are some things to which to commit ourselves without incurring risk, this is not true of many things of importance. To get married or choose a vocation or give oneself to a cause is to act on faith. Not blindly, but with full awareness that difficulties as well as delights are in store. We must count the cost and be willing to pay it before we can go ahead. To walk by faith and not by sight does not mean to stumble around in the dark, but with many of the details hidden, to go boldly forward by the light we have. Indeed, in no aspect of our lives do we have perfect knowledge. Yet, this doesn't stop us from taking risks for the things that we truly believe in. And we're always running the risks through our minds before making a decision. This doesn't mean that we always make the right decision. Sometimes the piece of information that we're missing is the crucial piece. Sometimes we're just simply bad at calculating the costs of our risks. Regardless of whether or not we make the right decision, we are doing this sort of thing every day of our life. And this should give us pause. How often, when we think about what we are doing, does the kingdom of God factor into our decision? Are we like the rich man who wants to follow Jesus, but still wants to hedge his bets with a worldly fortune? Or are we like the people of God wandering in the desert, willing to step out on faith as long as the rewards are immediate and apparent? Or do we have a kind of faith like the kind which Dr. Harkness speaks about? A faith that knows that there are great delights in store, but also fully aware that there are difficulties to walking by faith. When we are considering where to invest our money for retirement, do we think about whether or not the companies in which we invest are making the world a more just place? When we purchase anything from food and clothes to luxury items, 
Are we thinking about the conditions in which those goods were made? Or whether or not purchasing them feeds our soul? Even if we're making such calculations, how much weight do we place on the kingdom? Do we find that although we have the will of God in the back of our mind, it frequently loses out to our own wants and desires? By asking these questions, I'm not saying that we should all be desert hermits. In fact, I'll turn to one of Dr. Harkness's colleagues to clarify my thoughts. Ernest Fremont Tittle was the pastor at Evanston First United Methodist Church for most of his career. It was in this role that he served as the pastor for Dr. Harkness while she was a professor at Garrett. Tittle also happened to be one of the most prophetic public theologians of the mid-20th century. He was no stranger to controversy, having been an ardent pacifist from the end of World War I until his death in 1949. He was also an outspoken critic of the ways in which our economic system preyed upon the weak and vulnerable. And so he often found himself on the receiving end of vicious accusations that required him to defend his positions. In the midst of the Great Depression in 1931, Tittle defended his teachings by writing, Ask people today to seek first the kingdom of God, and many of them leap at once to the conclusion that you are asking them not to seek anything for themselves. You are asking them to surrender all desire for economic security and be content to live precariously, hand to mouth, with nothing laid up for their old age, no insurance against illness, accident, or death. In short, what you are proposing is a starved and stunted life, and they are prepared to tell you frankly, flatly, and finally that they have no stomach for it. I think more than 80 years later, this is still an apt description for Christian discourse. In an age when televangelists are able to preach the prosperity gospel 24-7, it's not as appealing to preach a gospel that requires us to give up our riches. Why listen to a preacher who asks you to pick up a cross daily when someone else is willing to offer you fortune and success? But as I have said, having faith and putting the kingdom first does not mean that we all have to channel our inner John the Baptist. We don't have to put on our fur pelts and survive off insects and honey. Rather, as Tittle explains, it is a plea to seek first not a private fortune, but a better economic order in which a man may do unto others as he would have them do unto him. It is, it is a plea to seek first not personal pleasure, but the welfare and happiness of others. Not social recognition, but public service. Not power to be used for personal ends, but power to be used for social ends. In other words, putting the kingdom of God first means embracing the love of God toward all creation. It means acting on our faith in ways that are mutually beneficial and supportive of God's entire beloved community. This is not 
always easy. In fact, it rarely means following the path of least resistance. As Dr. Harkness said, it means living boldly. Or as Tittle would say, seeking first the kingdom of God, there are some things which you will do which you are not likely to do if you are seeking first any kind of personal gain. You will take certain choice, certain chances which otherwise you will never have the courage to take. So faith is about bold, courageous action. It is about using all of the resources that we have for the mission of God. It is about honestly assessing what we need compared to what we want. It means recognizing when our comfort comes at the expense of someone else. It means acting to reconcile the injustices of the world by sharing our excess with one another so that we might all share in an abundant life. Or, to put it differently, having faith means listening to the word of God in the places where it makes us the most uncomfortable, to have it pierce our soul like a surgeon's knife. And I'm well aware that this is the kind of message that can come across as self-righteous pontification. So I want to be honest about the fact that these questions are ones that I have been having to reevaluate myself. In seminary, I could clearly identify the ways in which the kingdom of God was coming first in my life. Talking with my friends on campus, we could share in the fact that we had put our lives on hold to follow the call to ordained ministry. As we looked at other people our age who were starting families or making professional advancement, we knew that we were making the decision to forego those same life events for the sake of the kingdom. But now, for the first time in my adult life, I am in a position where I can even think about saving money for retirement. I have the security of knowing that I'm not one car repair from bankruptcy. For the most part, my life is starting to look like something that society would expect life to look like for a young-ish professional. And so I find myself having to redefine the ways in which I am oriented to the work of the kingdom. I'm having to consider at which point I cross the line from being financially secure to storing up treasures for myself. So I offer you the invitation to be in discernment, not as a voice from on high, but as a fellow servant of Christ. I hope that you will listen for the voice of the Spirit as it speaks into your life, so that you can consider what risks you can make to serve the kingdom. Where you feel the word of God piercing into your soul, may it inspire you to acknowledge that you have more that you can give. Have the kind of faith, brothers and sisters, that emboldens you to act courageously for the sake of God. Because we know that the journey of faith has its difficulties. But we also know that the rewards are great 
and that rest is promised to those who stay true. Amen.